Welcome back to the Clerixware Ringmail Podcast. I've got the net of the call-ins uh, that I wanted to address today. Got a wide variety of cast members here. Uh, excited to talk with all of them. And some of them even are calling in regarding the call-ins from the previous call-in. So, got a little recursion going on. Learn object-oriented concepts here on Clerixware Ringmail. Sesame Street, originally owned by PBS and the Children's Television Workshop, currently owned by HBO Max as of this recording, snippets of which are accidentally included in the background, and hopefully don't get me DCMA'd. Thank you, Sesame Street, for keeping my little boys distracted in the car and for doing so in an educational format. Great episode. Loved your conversation with Kevin. Um, I, I will give. I will say, as far as safety tools go, I recently have been in some games where lines and veils were used at the beginning of the game. Basically, players saying what, and the GM saying what they do and don't want to see. You know, no torture of household pets, things like that. And it didn't cause any issues during the game. It, there were no problems, and these were groups that had never met before that were playing for the first time together online. So I think in that kind of situation, it makes sense to use them. Um, so I, I don't think safety tools have to be a bad thing by any means. Um, and I agree that most of the controversies in our RPG world are people screaming for attention about problems that really don't exist because you and your group are going to play the game the way you want to, not how somebody else does. That was, of course, Jason of the Nerds Variety RPG cast. Thank you, Jason, for your call-in. Regarding controversy, I think we've known for a long time that clickbait sells. So making a big deal out of something, uh, pretending like something is a bigger deal than it is, and trying to get people riled up, Getting somebody angry uh, is going to sell a lot faster. You're going to get a lot more clicks, a lot more likes, a lot more copies, a lot more downloads, a lot more whatever the preferred media is. It's nothing new, and, and we all know that, but it's a habit of the, uh, the times we're in. Thinking about safety tools, and for the record, I'm not expressly anti-safety tool, but how much of what is a safety tool is common decency in disguise. The reason I bring this up, on Tin Cars Tavern Discord the other day, someone asked about safety tools uh, as part of ongoing research uh, or some something or other, and uh, another poster indicated that the first instance of safety tools being used at a convention was in 2013. Now, I don't know how long you've been playing, but I know I have been playing a lot longer than 2013. And I have had, like you described, lines and veils in my campaign for almost the whole time. 
one of those lines for my game is real-world religion. Now, I really enjoy talking about real-world religion. It's a huge part of my life, but I respect that not everyone at the table is of the same mind. And you think about it, we've got five, six people hanging out. If two of them want to chatter about something that's unrelated to the game, they're spending the time of four other people who came for something else, and that's disrespectful. Similarly, I will never put real-world religion in my games. I may steal from mythologies, so Greek and Roman pantheons, but I'm not going to put real-world religion in my game, too much to it. If I can get something simple, something that I can control the mythos of and that I won't make a mistake on, that's better. That produces a better experience. A veil in my game is sex. I have never felt comfortable role-playing sex, especially so after I got married. It just doesn't sit right with me. So, playing in my games, you can expect that sex will be at a minimum. I tell you that to tell you this. Players who violate those lines or who pierce those veils, I have to have a talk with them. And fortunately, I have not gotten to the point where I've had to kick anybody over them. But that possibility was always present. The possibility was present despite the lack of a tool. So I have never used a safety tool at my table, but I have talked to players about transgressing the line. I have been talked to by players about going over the line. And now that's not the specific line that we're talking about lines and veils and metaphor, but it doesn't matter. Where I'm going with this is I try to be a decent human being at the table. And when I game, I game with people that I consider my friends. And so what I'm suggesting is not that safety tools are necessarily a bad thing, but are they innovative? How much of the safety tool is new and how much is the safety tool wrapping a process, a procedure around what used to be a conversation and a person? How much of the safety tool is trying to create a mechanic, a control that imitates a functioning, non-sociopathic human interaction. To that end, to reiterate, though I do not and will not use them at my table, I don't think I need them. I do not fault people who do use them and do feel they need them, even if I don't quite understand the perspective that they're coming from. I will push back a little bit with the, the idea that you're metagaming when you're thinking ahead, when you're picking options for your character, when you level up. When you buy a house and you know in 10 years, not in 10 years, when you buy a house and you know in two years you and your wife are going to have want to have a child while you build that baby bedroom, so you're looking ahead, right? When you are going hunting, you're buying a new hunting rifle and you know that you're going to hunt bear next year, you're going to go out west next year. Maybe instead of that 257 Roberts, you buy that 35 Whalen for bear, or you're going out west, so you buy that 7mm Magnum instead of that 3030, right? So I think that in real life, people do look ahead and make choices. So I don't think that's min maxing for a character to do that when they're choosing their character options, thinking of what they might do a few months down the line. That is correct. I misspoke. 
I don't remember if I corrected myself on air. I think I might have, but I don't have a spare hour to go back and watch myself. Vancey and podcasting. Uh, Hobbs, your check is in the mail. But the important part, you are absolutely right. Uh, that is not metagaming. And when I said metagame, I used the wrong term. So to slip into computer science terms, what I meant when I said metagame, I actually meant it as two words. So in the gaming sense, metagaming is the act of acting on knowledge your character does not have, but your player does for your own advantage. In a computer science sense, you have data. That is information that's collected about a particular thing, and you have metadata, which is information about the information. An example might be, I have a object, Jason. Jason has a name, Jason. So the data is the word Jason, and the metadata would be that Jason is character data. It's spelled with letters, not numbers, dashes, or umlauts. In that sense, what I was trying to refer to was the build game, the system mastery, the ivory tower that people talk about that came about at the, at the onset of Watsy D&D. The better term would have been system mastery. To, to be clear, in games like BX and sort of AD&D, but not really by comparison, the system mastery game, the ivory tower game, doesn't really exist. You get what you get, and you know where you're going with the character, but it's more of a subclass game than it is a customization aspect. When you're with 3.0 and beyond, you're looking at feats, you're looking at prestige classes, you're looking at all manner of stuff extra. Uh, and Micah is looking at a firehouse. All in all, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for publishing it. Thank you. Very, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and I hope, you know, to hear both of you again very soon. Take care. Thank you, Jason, for listening. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for the encouragement. And for the dear listener, Jason, I do believe that there is another episode of the Red Caps coming out not too far from the future where they have a particularly distinguished guest on it. So to that end, by far future, of course, I mean it has already come out. I'm much slower to put these episodes out than anybody else in the Anchor Sphere. But the important part, I will include a link to both your podcast, the Nerds Variety RPG, and to Kevin's, the Red Caps. Not to that specific episode because that's too much work. But either way... Game on. Hey there, Daniel from Manage Keep Kong in. Um, <laughs> I tried to listen to the whole thing before I called. So I think what's really interesting here is if I, if I distill much of the conversation about them in maxing and the building and stuff, it's that none of it is really bad necessarily in and of itself. It's when the player is doing it in a way that takes away from let's say, the rest of the group. So in the example of the wizard that was all about moving dirt or whatever, that's fine if when you can't move the dirt, you're fine to play a character doing other things. In fact, I actually like that kind of thing, a specialized wizard. Uh, but if you're trying to force dirt moving when it doesn't make sense constantly because that's the only thing your character does, that's bad. And if you're building a character that just forces the entire party to do the thing that they do because that's all they do, and if they don't do it, you're not happy, that's probably bad. 
So, uh, yeah, I would say that overall I agree with that. So now we have three people in agreement. Um, so, yay. Well, hey there, Daniel. I feel like we just talked. But anyway, more seriously, I think we're absolutely on the same page there. Not every min-maxer is a builder, and not every builder is a min-maxer. It's the same sense where an adversarial referee is one who is being adversary to the player versus being adversary to the character. The min-maxer is one who builds their character and optimizes their character in a manner that is counterproductive to the experience of the group at the table. Now, there are other games, so the BXs and AD&Ds of the world. Now, AD&D has a little bit of character build and character optimization involved, but not even close to, say, 3E. And I feel like the OSR is predicated on that sort of simpler experience, your, your subclass experience. While I tend to prefer that kind of experience, I recognize that not everybody in the world is me. And as a byproduct, it makes sense that these other games may have taken root. Neither approach is intrinsically bad, neither approach is implicitly better or worse than the other, but at the end of the day, it comes down to what you and your table, that is, the listener you, not Daniel specifically, but what you and your table enjoy. Regarding the three of us being in agreement on most of the topics at hand, I'm okay with that. I like agreeing. Though, I do think, based on where I know that you live, we'd probably have, in pertinence to the conversation regarding snow, a team-up of two versus one. Good to hear from you. Thank you for calling in. Yo, Taylor, fantastic interview with Kevin. That guy rules. Uh, yeah, pumpkin, awesome beer. I'm just calling in with a little defense of builders. <laughs> I'm not really a pre-planner like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I can build a badass Pathfinder character, but I don't plan it out 1 to 20. Anyway, that said, uh, in both the Pathfinder groups I'm in, we talk way more about what's going on in the game than we do about character builds, even though I wish they would talk about their builds with me a little bit more. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we're constantly texting or calling or emailing each other like, oh, sh oh I don't want to swear on your show. Uh, oh, crap, something's going on. What, what are we going to do? It ended on a cliffhanger. What are we going to do? Who do you think has the MacGuffin that we need? So, yeah, you know, just because you build doesn't mean you don't also enjoy the game. Just want to say that. Bye. That sounds pretty awesome. Although the games that we play at home and probably the styles that we prefer are different, I do believe that, based on what I've heard and seen, our games are a lot more alike than we give ourselves credit for. Talking about Kevin, it was a blast to have him on. I'm glad that he came along. Thank you, Kevin. And, oddly enough, I heard, uh, I heard a little bird tell me that he had a special episode uh, not too long ago with a second distinguished guest where they discussed background stories. Very interesting episode. Uh, again, just head on over, dear listeners, to the Red Caps podcast and look for that secondary episode with our good buddy, Joe Richter, Con Richter, debating and defending the background story. 
Another fun thing about having Kevin on the show, afterwards, Anchor stats tell me that my estimated listenership has increased by a handful of people. They also told me that there was a software glitch over the last couple weeks where listens were not counted correctly and thereby would have affected the metrics. But instead, I am going to believe that it is because Kevin brought his red cap fandom along with him over to Clearxware Ringmail. Lastly, to speak to builds, builds do in fact exist. And in the games to which they are part, they represent an aspect of, drum roll, drum roll, drum roll, player skill. System mastery, although it may not be a skill that I like to indulge in, is in fact a skill. So when you're playing a game where that's part of the game, that's part of the experience, part of player skill is to engage with the game on its own terms. Joe, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're going to be OSR before you know it. And regarding swearing, you're more than welcome to swear. I do reserve the right to add my little beepy sound. Truthfully, the reason I have the beepy sound is because I think sensor bleeps are funny. Thank you, either way, for calling in. It's always fun to hear your voice, and it's always fun to try to think about how to respond to whatever it is you're bringing me. Peace out, my man. Hey, Taylor, it's me again. Sorry, still working my way through the episode. Calling in with some praise for Kevin. Yes, dude. Right now in the interview, Kevin, you're talking about how you're okay with character choices. You just want those choices made when you're leveling up and not already pre-planned out. And I 100% agree with that. That's how I build my characters. Don't get me wrong. I am a Pathfinder dude. So I know plenty of people that come to the table with their characters built 1 through 20. And every time that happens, if I know them, I'll say it. If I don't, I'll think it. That's a really bad idea. (laughs) Even from a character optimization standpoint. I mean, especially from a character optimization standpoint, if you really want to optimize your character, you have to tune your character to what's going on in the adventure. So yeah, man, that was, that was great. I loved it. I also loved how you pointed out that, yeah, character builds do exist in some points of the OSR. Bye. Okay. Taylor, last one. I promise Uh, a few things. First off, you need to resurrect that fantasy novel of yours record yourself reading it, and then publish it. I need that in my life. Second, I've never had the, uh, I've never done the whole, I'm going to write the novel of this campaign after the campaign thing, but I do have a player in my group who is currently working on the novel of a campaign that we finished a couple years ago because she just loved it so much. She loved her character. She loved the stories. She loved the adventure. Like, so yeah, I hope that happens because those are two things I need in my life. The audiobook versions of your fantasy novel and her novel based on my campaign. Those are things I need. Great interview. Peace out. Peace indeed. Whenever your friend publishes that work, let me know. I will shill it as hard as I can on this show and spread it as far and wide as my uh, massive four listeners. I had somebody comment on my last uh, presentation. Four! So, you know, I've bumped up my uh, listenership. But I digress. The important part is if if and when your friend publishes, let me know and I will advertise for free. Regarding my lost manuscript... I will do my best. The story would have been written when I was in high school, so probably 20, 25 years ago now. 
I will look around and see if I can find it in print. I know I printed it out at least once, so it may be in a binder at my dad's old house. Next time I'm up that direction, I will take a look and see if I can find it. And in the meantime, I've actually found out, kind of accidentally, that Drive Through RPG has a sister site, Drive Through Fiction. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes, although admittedly Googling it would probably be a little bit faster. The important part is it's an opportunity for print-on-demand fiction. Self-doxing commence. I may look into pulling out some of my short fiction that I had written in college when I was pursuing a creative writing degree and see if I can't, because I do, I do know I have that. We had a big old portfolio we had to make. Mine ended up being four or five inches thick. And I may be able to put that up onto the print-on-demand option. If that happens, you will be the first to know. Thank you, Joe, for your call. And now, peace out, my man. Peace out. Hey, Taylor, it's BJ. I just wanted to point out that TSR did us no favors whatsoever in those um, delusions that we would turn our campaign into a great novel by basically telling us that the Dragonlance Chronicles were based on the playtest for the initial <laughs> initial Dragonlance setting and series of modules. So they kind of set us all up for that. Um, thanks a lot, Tracy Hickman and Mar- Margaret Weiss. Hickman and Weiss. Hey, Taylor, Carl calling. I might need some help. Um, so I, I made this character for Cyberpunk uh, 2020. Well, I hope it's not 2020 because we already had that 2020 past and it just breaks my verisimilitude um, that now we're playing, we're in 2021 and we're playing 2020 and that didn't really happen. So hopefully he advances the timeline, but I think he mentioned something about not having cell phones, which also doesn't work. But that's not the real reason I'm calling. So I made this life character with the life path, and it says that like he cares about people. Um, he says sees a good in all people. But uh, you know, you make if you get into every single problem, try to help every single person in the world of 2020, you'll probably get yourself killed. And then I look at my character, and I see well, I didn't want him just to make him a super duper combat monkey, although he's pretty good. I mean, I want him to be able to talk to people and drive a bike. And so I didn't optimize him for the one thing that can help him survive. And I made him well-rounded on purpose because I prefer a well-rounded character. Um, but now Jason's scaring me with, oh, combat's super deadly. And if you don't get the shot off and if you're not good, you're just going to die. And like, well, then why? I don't want to play a game that's just combat after combat, right? I want to get into the world. But uh, I hope it's not like that. I hope, you know... We can do other things besides shoot out every time we go into a fast food joint. Um, but we'll see how this goes. But I really enjoyed you and Kevin's talk about min-maxing. And that's what kind of got me a little nervous about this gameplay. I also want to say I really enjoyed finally seeing you and putting a, a face to your voice in our Kalmata game. It's great to get back into Kalmata. It's been a while. And it was pretty fun. I mean, honestly, I could do without a lot of the diversion and um, what is it called? Locker room jokes. But uh, because I think that takes, it doesn't take away from the fun. 
I'm good at joking just as much, but I want to get shit done. And uh, I'd rather get shit done than talk about people's body parts. So uh, I really enjoyed meeting you. It was, it's great to hear your podcast. I've called in before and enjoyed, uh, like saying, I've enjoyed various types of your podcast. So uh, take care and uh, talk to you soon. Yep, it, it was a lot of fun playing that Kalamata game. I haven't gotten to play for a while. It's awesome that uh, Jason's coming back. I do uh, I do agree with you. We could definitely probably get some more stuff done if we uh, kind of avoided some of the puerility uh, that we tend to engage in. But eh, we are uh, we are not min-maxed in D&D uh, where we put some extra points into locker room talk. Eh, it is what it is. We got to live with our character decisions. Thinking about protecting your character in Cyberpunk? Well, a build is built, so uh, until you can get to that point where your character shifts in favor of the danger level, those skills kind of even out, here's a little trick. Don't tell Jason. What you can do whenever you think a firefight may be breaking out, zone out for just a second, and then when he asks, hey, what's going on? Just say, well, we're in a Cyberpunk future, and I just... I." I wonder if it wouldn't be more verisimilitudinous if we were all using electric vehicles. Boom, you're safe. That'll distract him for the next hour. Let me know how it works. I look forward to the play recap. That was, of course, Carl Rodriguez of the GMologist Presents uh, talking about playing a game with uh, Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. So now you know two places to go to see and get your listen on to the aforementioned play reports. I'm pretty sure, based on the pace at which I'm recording, that they'll definitely have a couple sessions at least out by the time that I'm able to get this behemoth of an episode of mine. So, again, Carl, thank you for calling in. And I really am looking forward to those session recaps. Hey, Taylor. Enjoyed your blog post about Army Darkness. Yeah, I think the Evil Dead series and the Ash vs. Evil Dead TV show are really great media. It you, you can make it all work thematically in your head. Of course, you know, Evil Dead's really just a retelling of, you know, it's, it's Evil Dead 1 done with a proper budget, right? But but they're both enjoyable on their own levels, slightly different things. And that, you know, Evil Dead 1 is more of a proper horror film. Evil Dead 2 is a little bit more of a, a horror comedy. Evil Dead 3, which you're... You know, Army Darkness is effectively a comedy with some horror elements, right? And then, of course, Ash vs. Evil Dead leans into that. It really builds more off of Evil Dead 2 than anything else. But they're all really great. Some of my favorite, favorite horror, horror media. Good stuff. I am also a fan of all three of those films, uh, as evidenced by the three of those films appearing in a picture on the blog post. I have not seen Ash vs. the Evil Dead. It is on my agenda to do. It just hasn't happened. Uh, life uh, got in the way. But it doesn't change that I think the root of the direction that series took is in its original director, uh, Sam Raimi. You can see that in other things he's done also. He gets a good concept and he makes a strong film, which then nets him a big budget for a new film. But then he gets a little silly, not silly enough to, you know, hurt it. And they, the executives uh, come in and fund a third movie. But then that third movie, uh, by that point, he's gone totally off the deep end. And while I enjoy it, uh, most audiences may not. 
cross-reference his Spider-Man accomplishments. I'm sure it's, of course, not unique to Sam Raimi. Hmm. I wonder if I could think of another director who made a really strong first showing and then got very silly near the end of his uh, cinematic opus. In fact, I think there are two movie properties that have been successfully translated to TV um, with the love and the care that the properties deserve. And that is Evil Dead with the Ash versus Evil Dead series. I think you see the care and love into that from everything from how the, you, you know, the changing intro music leads into the episode to the, how the outro music leads into the, the following episode, the, you know, the fan service, the bringing back of actors, everything. It, you know, you can tell they love the series. The other series I think that does good or does a really good job, of course, is Cobra Kai to the Karate Kid movies. So, although Cobra Kai, it looks like they're going to run it too long and they're probably going to screw it up because they're not going to stop at a good point. But we'll see. But Ash vs. Evil Dead is just about perfect. Noted and prioritized on my eventual watching list. Thank you very much for the recommendation. You know, a lot of the issues brought up in your dialogue with Daniel could be fixed by not playing Dungeons & Dragons and playing a different RPG. I, I think the... The whole question with hit points and healing and all. I Personally, my fix for the healing thing is whatever the healing is, the die you roll for healing is the hit point die of that character, and then you should multiply it by their level. So Cure Light Wounds might do one hit die times their level, and I think that helps a lot with the hit point problem. Otherwise, that first level fighter heals 10 times as fast as the 10th level fighter, which is just stupid. Um, but D and D, it's it's. I think you have to accept the game, which is fine. I'm fine playing it and accepting it, or you move on to a different game. I think trying to fix D and D is a well. I think that leads to madness. That's actually a pretty good house rule. I may uh, I may steal that. Actually, I'm going to make a note of that. Anyway, talking about fixing D and D, I think most of the fixes people put onto their D and D game are not so much fixes as they are changes. You hit a good point when you say that it's important to accept D and D for what it is, because the D and D game has a set of expectations. Newer editions, not as much. Certain modules, not as much, but. When you're talking about the OSR type D&D games, the core expectation is that you're going to be exploring, that you're going to be hauling treasure, and that combat is something you have to approach with caution and with forethought, because it can be deadly uh, no matter who you are. That, that really is a good idea, though. I'm going to steal that house rule. I've, I've never, never liked how being tougher made you heal longer. So Daniel's fallback to chainmail, I think, makes a lot of sense. Or AD, or I'm sorry, OD&D using chainmail for combat makes a lot of sense. E- either either sword and sorcery chainmail only, or you know the little the three little books with chainmail as a combat. I think both those are great ways to go about it. And again, I think the regular BX or Holmes Basic or AD&D First Edition, whatever you want to play, is fine. But I think you leave them rules as written because it's just crazy to try to fix a, a system because once you start peeling back the layers or 
so many things you have to change, it, it's not worth the effort. Um, as far as heel bots and all that, I think Dungeon Crawl Classics handles that wonderfully because if they're a different alignment, then you, you risk disfavor from your god. And even if they're not a different alignment, since you have to roll and potentially tick off your god by casting healing so much, I, I think it's a self-solving problem. Another game that solves the caster problem in an interesting way, uh, third edition Iron Kingdoms. The progenitor system, I think Privateer Press did it, for War Machine. I remember the first time that we got to play that game back in the day, uh, a buddy of mine who ran it, he had a computer, this, the graphics card would go molten. So if he played EverQuest 2, he literally had a box fan uh, next to his open computer case, and he turned the fan on, because if he turned the fan, the giant box fan off, then his computer would immediately shut down. But that's a that's tangential. He ran, and I forget, it wasn't the Witchlight uh, trilogy. It was some adventure, and we rolled up some characters. Iron Kingdoms. I absolutely loved that setting at the time. And one of the facets of Iron Kingdoms was a change to healing, where the gods permitted a certain amount of healing to occur every day. And if you went over that, the cleric would suffer backlash. So it was pretty easy to track as a player, but the biggest thing that it did uh, at the time, I'd been playing a whole lot of 3E, so I'd been corrupted by some new school builder types. And moreover, the uh, healing rules took me back. The, the, our party suddenly was very stealthy. Uh, we had some focus on long range cover and concealment and surprise was important and uh, alternative solutions. So it forced a sort of creative thinking and empowered some creative thinking uh, because of the novel setting and the new races and the different way everything got along. Definitely worth uh, checking out for a read, although I haven't played it since 2000 four or whenever that was so been a while good uh, good system good fiction and i'm pretty sure i still have the iron kingdoms player's handbook around here somewhere talking about changing your game up there's definitely something to writing your own game you start with the framework of an existing game. You identify the parts of it you like, the parts of it that are conducive to the direction you want to go at your table, and then you change it up, and eventually your house rules are thicker than the rule book. At that point, slap it together, call it, uh, call it a separate system. There's also some merit in just innovating for the, for the fun of it. I personally enjoy system design, and I think uh, Daniel uh, has indicated he enjoys system design, coming up with little games just because of uh, the potential in it. Uh, for me, I enjoy going through the math, going through the implications of how this will influence player psychology, And but I've written so many heartbreakers and lost so many heartbreakers in my day. I will uh, force myself at this point to focus on the little one that I've uh, still got going on. So yeah, more information to come on that uh, as uh, as time develops. So thank you. Uh, thank you for your call-ins, uh, both these ones and the ones at the start of the show. And with that, we have cleared out my call backlog. Thank you, uh, everybody, for calling in. Uh, specifically, thank you, uh, Jason. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Joe. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for making uh, Joe's call-ins all complimentary and stuff. 
Thank you, BJ. Thank you, Carl. And thank you, Jason, a second time. Side note, Carl, some folks like to periodically complain that uh, you are particularly quiet on the other end of the line. Uh, I don't know what you did differently for these calls, but I actually did not have to amplify them at all. Uh, you were very easy to understand and very easy to hear. Whatever you were doing, you know, three weeks ago or whenever this message came through, uh, it was doing the right thing, apparently. For anybody else on the uh, listening end, look forward to the first periodic Clearxware ring mail contest for total prizes, definitely. I've got an idea of what I want to do. Now I just have to figure out how to implement it and how to uh, pay for it. <laughs> in any case, thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to get in on the action, uh, this or any other topic, uh, preferably gaming, uh, head right over to my Anchor site and drop me a message. Head over to the blog. You can find links on the blog for my new Twitter account, my MeWe account, uh, or a link to the Audio Dungeon Discord, where everybody you heard today hangs out and makes trouble. So, in any case, drop me a line or drop me some dice. Delve on, listeners. Delve on. Originally by Lucasfilm and property of Disney. Download it from soundboard.com under the soundboard.com personal use rights. Used in accordance with those rights on a non-sponsored, non-revenue generating podcast episode. Included likewise under US Title 17, Section 107 as parody. Theme music used for the Clerics Wearing Mail podcast is adapted from Pursuing Darkness by artist X Take Rux. Released into the public domain and made available on freemusicarchive.org. Sound effects used in the making of this product retrieved from mixkit.co, used under the mixkit sound effects free license, or from soundj.com and used in accordance with the soundj.com terms of use. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The Clerics Wearing Mail podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons. Licensing. Clerics wearing mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by Collins, guests, or even the host unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clerics wearing mail podcast, you agree to the provided term. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clerics wearing mail at the prescribed methods provided on the Clerics wearing mail blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg. Hickman and Weiss.